Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. What do you think of when I say the phrase spiritual warfare? What do you picture? What images come to mind? The exorcist, maybe? And spinning heads and pea soup and all sorts of horror? Maybe you picture the scene from the 2003 Luther movie, the, funded by Thrivent, where Luther is, is in his room at the monastery and he's arguing out loud with the devil. And some of you I've heard have even been to the Wartburg Castle in Germany where Luther translated the Bible and they allege that there's still his ink stain on the wall from throwing his ink well at the devil. Or maybe you're thinking of a movie that came out a few years back called War Room with the tagline, Prayer is a powerful weapon. It's one of those delightfully cheesy Christian movies. Uh, it's a surprising that a recent poll showed that only 57% of Americans surveyed believed in the existence of the devil in a country claiming to be roughly 80% Christian. 57% believe in the existence of a personal, actual devil. But even though only 57% of people believe that, the existence of movies and TV shows about spiritual warfare, demonic possession, they're more popular than ever. For example, the movie War Room, which doesn't deal with possession or anything like that, but with issues of spiritual warfare, the power of prayer, cost $3 million to make and ended up making over $73 million. A huge hit by Hollywood standards. I'm not recommending it, by the way. Look at the horror genre as a whole. The two highest grossing horror films of all time are The Exorcist and The Conjuring, both movies that deal with the issue of demonic possession and the triumph of God's goodness over evil. Don't take any of this as a recommendation to watch any of these films, by the way, but I just wanted to highlight how prevalent this is in our thinking, yet so often denied or dismissed. There is serious interest on this topic, and as the movies show, this topic can scare people. To top it off, popular Christian culture likes to present the fact that each and every Christian is involved in spiritual warfare. Countless books and DVDs offer tools to equip individual Christians to do battle with the devil and his minions. Not all that long ago, I spoke with a man who had grown up in the Lutheran church and had joined some sort of Pentecostal church. And he told me that he got all the bullets in his upbringing in the Lutheran church, but he didn't know how to fire them in his war against the devil. I thought it a little strange, but it's a topic that fascinates people. The thing is that true Christians are involved in a fight against the devil. St. Paul said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Luther likewise remarked that each and every person who is baptized into Christ is considered by the devil to be his enemy for life. But it's really not all as glamorous as the movies make it seem. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Gibbs, gave an incredibly strange issue to us that can only be described as spiritual warfare. 
And I want to give you the spiritual warfare challenge. He urged us to read the passage of the Bible that is the basis for our sermon or Bible study 20 times before attempting to write anything about it. Read it without stopping 20 times before you say a peep. Sounds simple, right? He warned us that this seemingly simple task is almost impossible to do. For some reason, and I've noticed this every single time, about the fifth or sixth time through, I always find myself either letting my mind wander or go to other subjects, getting an urgent phone call or a text message, or even perhaps starting to drift off to sleep. Spiritual warfare, the only way to explain it. I dare you to try it sometime and see what happens. Take your bulletin home and try to read the gospel text 20 times in a row. It'll be way harder than you thought. Likewise, he taught us the main task of being a student and interpreter of the Bible is this. You ready for the big technique? <laughs> Seems simple, but guess what happens when your head's down in the text? You think of something, and you start to think. And your head pops up, and you start looking around, and boom, it's gone. Put it back down. <laughs> Sounds silly. The, the world around us thinks, oh, that's ridiculous. You just have attention deficit disorder or something like this. Or turn your phone off and see what happens. But it's not your phone. It's not your TV. It's not the doorbell. It's your heart. Anything that keeps you from the word. You will be amazed, though, what happens if you do get through 20 times. The insight that you'll receive. I find most of my major breakthroughs in studying a text start about the 12th time through. It's funny considering how hard it gets after five or six. Spiritual warfare not nearly as glamorous as the movies make it out to be. And sometimes the devil can be so obvious that it is downright comedic. Because we live in a culture that has tried to sanitize the concept of evil. People try to blame religions or weapons or movies or violent video games, TV shows or popular music for all of the horrible atrocities that occur in our world. But then we write off the devil as being some antiquated, superstitious mumbo-jumbo that has no place in a polite, civilized society. What a marvelous job that Satan has done of convincing people that he either doesn't exist or that he's no big deal. C.S. Lewis called that Satan's great triumph. It was for people to no longer believe his existence. But I think that the popularity of such movies and TV shows as we've already described underscores the fact that people are indeed wrestling with the problem of evil. And deep down, the man on the street isn't totally convinced that it's not all real. Not always convinced that there is a very real devil and very real demons. We wonder. And our Western culture may see this as superstitious, but our brothers and sisters in Africa, South America, Asia, they deal with the devil and with his demons on a much more personal, face-to-face -face basis. Take, for example, the Lutheran Church in Madagascar, the Malagasy Lutheran Church. The main way that this church body has grown to almost 6 million members is through exorcisms. 
don't think that evil is real and that demons are real? The native religion of Madagascar includes asking to be possessed by the spirit of one's ancestors in order to get special gifts of fortune-telling and other miracle-working. And it works, except for the whole ancestor part. Asking to be possessed apparently opens the door to let the demons right in. And there in Madagascar, a growing army of lay exorcists, most of whom had first encountered Jesus through their own deliverance, bring the gospel to people suffering with possession. It sounds ridiculous, right? Ted Bennett, a professor at the Fort Wayne Seminary, has a fantastic book on the subject. It's a very real phenomenon happening right there. The church that went from a few members in 1899 to 6 million today, three times the size of our Missouri Synod, does so through dealing with demons face to face in this act of mercy. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus has a direct conversation with a demon-possessed man. The voice says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Unlike the depiction of demons in the movies, this demon isn't hurling insults at Jesus, but rather he is one that recognizes who Jesus is and recognizes Jesus' power and authority. The man who was possessed was in rough shape. Rather than living in a house, he's living out in the graveyard, out of his mind, running around in his birthday suit. The disciples had yet to recognize Jesus' true identity even though they knew that he carried great power and authority. But this man knows exactly who Jesus is, the Son of the Most High God. This is the first time in Luke's Gospel since the angel's announcement to Mary and Joseph that Jesus is called the Son of the Most High God. Those disciples didn't know it fully, but the demon does. What do you have to do with me? We might even translate this, why don't you just leave me alone? It's pitiable. In fact, that is a really good question. Why doesn't Jesus just leave this poor demoniac alone? After all, this guy's a Gentile, not a Jew, not an Israelite, a child of Abraham. Jesus was sent, of course, to be the savior of the people of Israel, first and foremost. This guy had been out in the graveyard. It would have been considered unclean for a Jew to even come in contact with him. Plus, to top it all off, there's a herd of pigs nearby. And Jews aren't supposed to come in contact with them either. They're unclean. He's an unclean man from an unclean people, full of unclean spirits, living in an unclean land. Why doesn't Jesus just leave him alone? And Jesus has already crossed major boundaries and borders to be there precisely because he's not about to leave anyone alone. He's there to defeat the devil and all his hosts. He is there to bring the healing, mercy, and compassion of God to the whole world, to Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, the religious elite, and the outcast alike. Jesus doesn't become unclean by coming in contact with the unclean. He makes it clean. He doesn't leave this man alone because of, his, because of his great love for his creation. 
That's why he will not leave him alone. He is the Most High God who created this God. He's not content to leave him alone in his misery and suffering. Wherever Jesus goes, power and authority, mercy and healing go with him. And it raises another interesting question for us today. Why does Jesus not leave us alone? While we might not be suffering from demonic possession per se, there are all sorts of things that take over our lives, consume us from the inside out. And like this unclean man with an unclean spirit in the country of the Gerasenes, why in the world would Jesus even bother with us? The vast majority of us are Gentiles. And there are things in each of our lives that push us to live in a way that is out of sync with God's plan for our lives. We might not be possessed by demons, but we're possessed by sin in so many ways. St. Paul said that he struggled with this. In Romans 7, he says the things that he didn't do, he, he didn't do the things he wants to do, and he does do the things that he hates. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who gives us the victory. We, likewise, stand before Jesus every single week, confessing many of the same things that we confessed the week before and more. There is something in this world. It's not just the land of the Gerasenes that was unclean. It's the world in which that country exists and ours. There's something rotten that's gotten a hold of us. So we ask him, Jesus, why don't you leave me alone? What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is not just the plea of the demon in this man who knows his days are numbered, but it is simultaneously the cry of the man's suffering, the plea of faith to Jesus. Why do you not leave me alone? I beg you, do not torment me. We stand before our Lord with the same plea. Please don't leave me alone. Please don't torment me. Have mercy on me. And he doesn't leave us alone. And he does have mercy. Even though Jesus himself experienced the greatest isolation in history on our behalf on the cross. You know that moment when the father turned his face away from his son and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hell and damnation are nothing more and nothing less than total separation from God. And Jesus suffered hell and damnation upon the cross in your place. He took the full weight of human sin on himself and he put it to death in your place. He paid the debt that you owed and could never pay. All of those pet sins that torment you and possess you, the addictions, the bad habits, the chains that drive you out of your mind and isolate you in your personal graveyard of despair and pain, yet he put those to death too. Why does Jesus not leave you alone? Because he loves you far too much for that. Instead of being possessed by demons, he instead 
fills us with the Holy Spirit. Instead of letting us wallow in the nakedness of shame and sin, he clothes us with his very own righteousness. And he drags us out of our own personal graveyards and here into his very own house, his holy church. And one day, he's going to drag you out of that graveyard too, across the street. Remember, wherever Jesus goes, there is power, authority, mercy, and healing, and especially life. The man who had been healed by Jesus begged him to go along with him from there on out. But Jesus has something else in mind for him. He also has something in mind for you too and for me. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much God had done for him. So go home. Not quite yet. Tell your own family, your friends, your neighbors what God has done for you. Tell the whole city, the whole countryside what Jesus has done for you. Because your chains and your shackles, just like much of this former demoniac, those chains are broken. Your chains are gone. And you are free in the name of Jesus. Amen. And the peace of our God that surpasses all of our human understanding, guard your hearts and minds in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.